Good morning. This is the Lou Rockwell Show, and how honored we are to have as our guest this morning, Dave Smith. Dave is a comedian. He's was a star of the Mises University this summer. He's a podcaster, a political commentator. He's a contributor to SE Cup Unfiltered and the HLN Network, as well as he's host of the popular podcast, Part of the Problem, where he expounds upon current events, the government, foreign policy, and all things libertarian in a very entertaining way. Dave's debut comedy special, Libertas, was one of the top comedy specials in 2017. He's been featured at the Montreal Comedy Festival, the Montauer Comedy Festival, and the New York Comedy Festival. And he's been a guest multiple times on the Joe Rogan Experience. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. It's a real honor to be here. I've, um, I've done the, uh, the Mises Weekend podcast uh, the Tom Woods Show, the Ron Paul Liberty Report. So now to be here with Lou Rockwell, I feel like uh, like this is it. I've got nothing to live for anymore. I've I've done everything I wanted to. Dave, were you always funny? Were you funny as a kid? Yes, I think I was always funny. At least as long as I can remember, I always kind of identified as as the funny kid. I'm not quite sure where it came from, but my grandfather was hilarious, and uh, my mother was very funny. So it it was just kind of in my blood. That's tremendous. And uh, do you find that a comedian with your views has problems going on college campuses? Are you barred or do you uh, still go and uh, uh, have fun? Tell me what what happens on campuses. Uh, I I haven't been on a college campus at this point in uh, for years. Um, Even comedians who don't strongly have my point of view feel the same way. I mean, there's even Jerry Seinfeld said he doesn't like doing college campuses anymore. And he's really just, you know, making jokes about like peanuts on airplanes and stuff like that. But it's not even so much anymore. If you, you know, if you're a libertarian or a right winger or something like that, you're going to have a problem. If you don't buy into every single left wing orthodoxy, you're, you're going to have problems. So, you know, it's, to me, it's, it's really crazy because maybe I was kind of naive and also things changed over the last few years. But when I first started, I was like, oh, I, I think I'm the type of comedian college kids would love because I'm talking about issues and, and government and politics and things like that. But they're really not interested in it at all. So tell me, what what do people laugh at? What do your people laugh at? Well, I mean, I think people in general – when you get away from, I mean, with the exception, like I was saying, of of universities and perhaps particular shows, you know, in, in certain areas, in general, I think people are very much willing to laugh at all of the absurdities of what's going on. And I think that um, when you get into like a comedy club, a lot of times nowadays, people are kind of starved for that because during the day, everybody, you know, out in polite society. Everyone's got to be dug into their position. And one of the things that I do is I, you know, and this is partially because I'm an anarcho-capitalist libertarian. I, I can easily make fun of everybody because I don't really have a dog in the fight. Um, I don't, I don't prefer really the Republicans or the Democrats. I think they're all crazy. And so once you start making fun of everybody, uh, I think it gives people a little bit more permission to laugh. And everybody's worth making fun of, obviously. The Republicans are horror and, and maybe is more horrible than the Democrats. Yeah, well, that's that's for sure. And that's that's kind of the weird thing that gets lost today is that, you know, it, it's like 
you either have to hate Donald Trump and think Barack Obama was the greatest president ever, or you hate Barack Obama and think Donald Trump has saved the country. And as as we all know, the reality of the situation is that both of those positions are are fairly absurd. And that always, you know, makes for a lot of humor. You know, one of the, the things that got a lot of uh, laughs, one of your remarks that got a lot of laughs when you were at, at Mises University was that people thought, well, the two parties are the same, the presidents are the same. Fundamentally, Bush and Obama were pretty much the same. But Trump turns out not to be the same. Well, that's for sure. And in many ways, it's a breath of fresh air. Um, you know, the unfortunately, the areas where I mean, personally, he's not the same as anybody like the 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 establishment wanted to run Jeb Bush versus Hillary Clinton in this last election. And I I for the life of me can't figure out what the difference is. There's like a <laughs> centimeter between those two of, of difference. Donald Trump personally is a very, very different uh, person. And honestly, I think most of the stuff that he's doing that's different is positive. Uh, unfortunately, from a policy perspective, the things that are the same, like record high government spending, record high military budgets, the wars in the Middle East, that that's the really bad stuff. And there's something kind of hilarious about the the media wants to knock Donald Trump as this kind of unique evil, like he's so much worse than anything else we've had. But really, the worst things he's doing are the continuations of Obama's policies. And the other stuff like that, that they're furious about is like, oh, my God, he he met with the Russians and tried to have detente with Russia. This this madman who doesn't want nuclear war and and that stuff is is pretty good. And then of course, like what you were getting at, just personally, Donald Trump is different from everyone. Uh, he's different from any human being I've ever seen before. I mean, from every detail, like the from the color of his skin and his hair to the way he he speaks and and at least. From my perspective, it seems like that might be a positive thing because this is at least he's willing to just say, well, I'm not going to do everything exactly the way you guys want me to. I'm going to go try to talk to these people. So maybe there's a little bit of hope there. David, how do you become an anarcho-capitalist libertarian? Well, my my libertarian origin story starts as so many people my age. It was with the Ron Paul Giuliani moment. This is I, I had no idea what a libertarian was. I had heard Bill Maher use the term a few times, like in the 90s. And um, and I was I wasn't a super political person, but I, I grew very disgusted with the Bush administration. And I thought the wars were terrible and the Bush administration was just doing a terrible job. And then I, I happened to be watching a presidential debate and I saw Ron Paul take on Rudy Giuliani. And I was just like, who the heck is that guy? And I got to learn more about him. And it was it was that he was making such a, a crisp, clear point. And then the courage that he showed to give that Republican audience the most bitter pill you could imagine, you know, the most bitter pill like, oh, you know, you know how you rail about these terrorists and you just praise the military. Well, here's the real story. And then when he was asked to apologize, he refused. And I, I was just like, I got to learn more about this guy. So I started looking him up and, and reading more of his books. Shortly after that, I found uh, Tom Woods and Peter Schiff. And I started reading a lot of Tom stuff. And then Tom kept talking about this Murray Rothbard guy. He wouldn't <laughs> shut up about him. And I was like, all right, well, let me check this guy out. And and once I started reading Murray Rothbard, I mean, I don't have to tell you, uh, you know, his his writing, it hits like a punch to the chest. 
And then I, I found the Mises Institute. I spent more hours than I could ever count on Mises.org. I'm I'm incredibly grateful to you for creating that site. And and um, I always, when, whenever people have a particular question for me, well, how would this work or how would that work? I said, go to Mises.org. All the answers are there. And yeah, I was I was just convinced. Well, that's great for our side, is all I can say, because you're uh, you're a tremendous asset. You're our star comedian. And um, tell us, can people go online and hear you, or do you have any of your routines uh, available to listen to? Yeah, well, I I put out my first comedy special last year. It's called Libertas, and um, you can get that at gasdigitalnetwork.com, and you can also find my podcast part of the problem there. So I've got hours and hours and hours of podcasts up, and, and that full hour of stand-up is available. And then you can also probably find some stuff on YouTube. And, of course, we're going to link to all these wonderful items on uh, this podcast. So, David, what do you see as the future? What's what's your what's your feelings about the future for the country and the future for our ideas and maybe the future for your kind of comedy, too? Well, I, um, I you know, I'm not completely sure. I will say I was very, very optimistic, maybe naively so in 2012 when when Ron Paul was running for president. And I thought this was really the beginning of what was going to be a huge libertarian moment. I thought they they couldn't stop us at this point. We had all the young people on on the Republican side, and I was probably the most naive position that I had when when I was first, you know, kind of newly converted into all this stuff. Was that I was like, oh, we're going to be able to convince the left that we're we're the right way to go because you know you can say, well, look, the most important issues to you are like ending wars and ending, you know, uh, mass incarceration and the war on drugs and all these things. And we can offer you all of this stuff. And then you can still have all of your social programs. You just have to do it voluntarily. So in my opinion, I was like, isn't that just a perfect sales pitch? I mean, who could possibly turn that down? And I, uh, I learned the hard way that that is not, uh, gonna, <laughs> that's not going to be an easy sell. And also that uh, a lot of people, I think to some degree in a response to the left-wing craziness that's happened over the last, you know, six years or so. A lot of people uh, on the right side kind of abandoned libertarianism and went into a more nationalist mode. And so, you know, I, I look at things now and I just think, I, I guess, I don't know if this is optimistic or pessimistic, but there is something to be said for the fact that, look, like when I got converted in around the 2008, there was so much momentum for libertarians, and it, a lot of it was that we had Ron Paul out there, but a lot of it was just the failures of the state and the fact that simultaneously you had the wars that were out of control that everybody had realized were all sold to us based off lies and that they were disasters. Like it, it probably would have been one thing if say, well, okay, they didn't have weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, but we did leave it a way better society than we found it. But that's not even the case. It's like they lied and we, we didn't help anybody. We got thousands of our own dead military people, hundreds of thousands of, of dead Muslims. And, and for what? Just to bring a worse society. in. So we had that. And then also we had the bubble burst. And the, the Austrian economists were the only ones who could explain to you what happened there. The, the mainstream view was like, you know, I think greed got out of control between <laughs> 2006 and 2008 or something like that. Like it, it was ridiculous. And so I, I look at the situation now and, and I got to say, I mean, they, they've been building up this new bubble for quite a while. And if that bursts, 
I think it, that might give uh, libertarians an opportunity for another big national moment. Unfortunately, this bubble now is so big that the pain that it's going to cause if this bursts could could also lead to you know some of the more radical movements. I, like what truly scares me is if this bubble bursts on Donald Trump's watch and you see these democratic socialists gaining steam in the Democrat Party. I mean, that's that's a recipe for a disaster right there. So I don't know. I, I don't know what people will will want to laugh at. I'll just keep finding the funny where I can. But hopefully we have another uh, another libertarian moment. Well, you're going to help it bring it about if anybody does. Uh, I remember, of course, Ron's Giuliani moment. <laughs> And I called him up immediately and congratulated him, and he felt that it didn't go well. <laughs> and I said, Ron, that was just <laughs> one of the greatest things I've ever seen. It's it's tremendous. And of course, as you knew it immediately too, it was a turning point. And Ron has still got his Liberty podcast TV show every day. He's still going strong. Libertarianism is going strong. Murray Rothbard is probably the best uh, known economist in the world today in terms of the regular people reading him anyway. And I remember when I, I, I blogged that once, some of the Milton Friedman followers said uh, that was a terrible thing to say and it was really very unfair because all of Rothbard's works were available for free on the internet at the Mises Institute <laughs> and Milton Friedman's books were all very expensive and diff you know, and you, you, had to buy, you had to buy them. <laughs> so I, I said I didn't find that a compelling argument. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, right. That's uh that that's an interesting take on it. Of course it does it absolutely drives people crazy. And it's it's amazing that it still does because you would think that at at this point it would be like, you know, uh water under the bridge, but it still drives people crazy that Rothbard is having more of an impact than any of these guys because their big argument was like, "Okay, well, Murray Rothbard he might be more pure than us. He might have gotten a few things right that we got wrong. But, you know, he was so ideologically pure that he could never have a real impact. That was kind of their big argument. And then when they see that not only was he more pure, not only was he more correct, but also that's what actually motivates people. That's what is having a big impact. Their entire argument comes crashing down. So they they do not like the fact that people are online, that they can still read Rothbard's stuff. And you know, uh, look, Milton Friedman was okay on on some issues. He he had some good appearances on Donahue, but who could ever read some of of Milton Friedman's stuff and think it hits with a fraction of the force that Murray Rothbard's work does? It 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 just doesn't. As you point out, I mean, Murray's work is so powerful. Uh, you only have to read one of his um, monographs, even one of his articles, and uh, it can change your life. Oh, absolutely. I to, to this day, and I always recommend when people are saying like, oh, what's the first thing I should read? I always say Anatomy of the State mm -hmm. and War, Peace, and the State. Those two, I, I mean, essays or pamphlets or whatever you would call them, they, they absolutely changed my life. I remember having to put down uh, Anatomy of the State at one point and just be like, wow. <laughs> and go, but, I mean, it's like they're powerful, powerful pieces. And once you have that information, y you can't unlearn it. No, it's true, and you will see the state and you see the society uh, in a very different way. I always remember that these these two tremendous works were written for little tiny publications, very small circulation, so they didn't have quite the effect they should have had. But now, thank goodness, they're online, they're free. More and more people read them all over the world. We, we find that uh, people in Latin America, in Europe, in 
Asia, I mean, just all over the world, read Rothbard, uh, and they tell their friends about him. And he's just having the kind of effect that uh, he should have had during his lifetime. And he did have during his lifetime on those of us who were lucky enough to know him. Right. Yeah. And and I mean, that's an interesting, you know, it, it's like a shame to me that he didn't kind of get to see some of the fruits of his labor in his lifetime. But it, it is, uh, you know, it really is unbelievable when you hear, um, you know, like if you read the the despicable William F. Buckley piece that he wrote about Murray Rothbard after he passed. But there is something kind of vindicating in the fact that ultimately, uh, maybe not in this world, but Murray Rothbard gets the last laugh where I have never in my life heard uh, an intelligent young person uh, come to me and say, you know, I just read some <laughs> William F. Buckley and it really changed my mind on this issue. I mean, that, ju- that just doesn't exist. I mean, I don't think young people even know who William F. Buckley is or was. Yeah. Yeah. And that's rightly right. so. So he was he was a uh, a bad guy. He was a, one of the first neocons. And uh, from his writings starting in the late 1940s, he was advocating a massive state in order to fight the communists. And then once the communists were defeated, well, just the funniest thing, he didn't want to get rid of that massive state. <laughs> he wanted to keep it. Right. And that, there's something interesting about that moment when, um, you know, it kind of exposed the phoniness of all of those those cold warriors and then it also it, it exposed who the the very few honest ones were and it turned out the honest ones were few and far between but like a pat buchanan for example who once that was over was like okay well that's it we can go back to having a small government now and he he found out pretty quickly that that wasn't the game plan <laughs> no and uh, the great neil mccaffrey who was a, a publisher of arlington house books and published rothbard and mises and uh, other greats uh, had been a Cold Warrior, but he immediately stopped it when the war, when the Cold War was over, and in fact reevaluated his views uh, previously. So there were men like that, but uh, not too many. Most of them stuck with the plan and uh, wanted jobs within the government or wanted to uh, get be paid massive amounts of money for praising the government, as uh, Mr. Buckley was. We, I, uh, me and um, uh, Scott Horton from antiwar.com will we'll talk on the phone and our favorite counterfactual uh, to history, and we'll just fantasize about this for probably way too long. But we go, okay, Ron Paul wins the presidency in 1988. <laughs> the Soviet Union collapses on his watch. Ron Paul's president, he goes, great, guys, we're abolishing the CIA, we're slashing the military budget by two-thirds, we're returning back to being the city on the hill. No one can argue because it's like, hey, we won the Cold War. Congratulations, victory. Now we get rid of all this stuff. But, of course, that was not the way it went down. Unfortunately, we had George H.W. Bush in there who was not quite so good. When Ron Paul was running in 1988 for president, and uh, Bill Buckley uh, invited him on his show, or I guess the PR guy got Ron on the show, and uh, Ron went on there. And Buckley was polite and and friendly, and then he said, what is this about you wanting to abolish the CIA? And Ron Paul gave a very uh, eloquent, short reasons why the CIA was against American interests, against interests of other countries, and absolutely should be abolished. And Buckley became so vicious, so nasty, and clearly that, of course, he was a CIA agent. That's right. how he, and these guys, I think they say the same thing about the KGB. You never stop being an agent. You're always in the CIA. Uh, even if you're not being paid, you're expected to uh, obey if you're asked to do something, and you're expected to always defend 
the agency. And certainly Buckley all his life uh, was a CIA guy. Yeah. And this it's amazing because this stuff is still so it's the exact same dynamic going on today. I mean, if you see when when Donald Trump, he made the most I mean, it was the most like barely even ruffling feathers statement when he was with Putin. And he basically said, like, well, you know, that's what the intelligence community says. But I'm not really sure. Uh, I'm not really sure if it was Russia or what. And the way the media reacted (laughs) to like to have the nerve to challenge the CIA. Evidently, you're not allowed to do that. They are beyond reproach. I mean, you you cannot say anything except, yes, the great men and women of the CIA got it right, as they always have, (laughs) even though, you know, anyone who's studied the history of the CIA for like three minutes knows that they, they've lied to the American people over and over again with catastrophic uh, effects. But it really is interesting. You know, it's like the, the mainstream media to me is, you know, it's obviously there's a lot of people there who are just kind of, you know, they, they know what's good for them. So they know what to say in order to keep being promoted and keep their job and stuff. But it does make you wonder how many of them are just directly working for these guys. Well, there was an Operation Mockingbird set up mm-hmm. by the CIA in the 1940s to infiltrate the media, and I think it still goes on. Whether it has a different name or not, I don't know. But there are uh, people embedded in the ver- in the networks and in uh, the various big websites and in the publications to do the CIA's bidding and to make sure that all the media sing the same song. I, I, I noticed the other day there was all the members of the all the heads of the intelligence community. By the way, anything called a community in Washington is evil, I've not noticed. <laughs> but anyway, they're, yeah. they're all there in the White House to discuss the Russians uh, fooling with American elections. And so a reporter asked Dan Coates, who's the director of national intelligence, and a guy I've met, and he is he the dumbest guy in Washington? I don't know. He would be in the running anyway. <laughs> so they asked him, can you give us some uh, examples of what the Russians did? And it was, you know, hama, hama, hama. He couldn't, he couldn't, com- he couldn't come up with an example. Right. And we're supposed to bow down and obey these people, honor them, uh, and always praise them when they really are our enemies. And it's really, it's so sick. It, it's like a, a biblical level evil, you know, something like out of uh, like Satanism or something like that, where where you'll see how dangerous the game that they're playing is. So, you know, like whatever evidence has been put forward, I mean, basically from my understanding, I mean, since like about 1919, uh, the, the Russians and the Americans have both tried to interfere in each other's elections, to, you know, with with minimal success, whatever the Russians like put some Facebook profiles up to try to influence <laughs> people or whatever. Like that's basically what they've got. And then they'll just say they'll go, Russia attacked our democracy. And you're like, man, that is so dangerous to just put it out there. Like basically these guys attacked us. So what's the what's the logical conclusion if they attacked us? Well, we should attack them back. The, the fact that you'll just provoke war with a nuclear armed power, as Donald Trump said, the two powers that have 90% of the nukes in the world. I mean, it's it's so incredibly dangerous. And it lets you know, it's like, even as anti-war as I am, like I've been against all of these wars since I was converted by Ron Paul and even before then. But, you know, the war in Iraq was terrible. Libya, Yemen, all these places, Syria, it's all terrible. But a war with Russia you're like, guys, you you actually want to flirt with destroying all of humanity? They practice what John Foster Dulles uh, called brinkmanship. Yeah. So it was important to f- get up right up to the brink of a, a third world war and to make the Russians do whatever the U.S. wanted them to do. So it's uh, these, 
They're crazy. Yeah. And they're evil, as you point out. You know, you, one of the great things you're doing is waking people up to this and making people laugh at them. Uh, they can't stand to be laughed at. It's great to criticize them seriously, uh, but to make people laugh at them is really, I, I think, about the greatest thing one could do. Yeah, well, there is something about, I mean, both are very important, but there's there's something about, you know, when, when you get someone to laugh at someone, it, it can be like an end around against their defenses sometimes. Because if so, there's something about laughing that is somewhat of an involuntary reaction. And if you can pull laughter out of somebody, it's almost like proof. It's like I just proved that this guy is ridiculous because you even laughed at the joke. And and there's something that's powerful about that. So I I, I try my best. And as you mentioned earlier, there's there's plenty to laugh at at these people. <laughs> Dave, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. And, and uh, I know you're going to say you're not, but you're a libertarian leader and you're uh, making people laugh. You're educating people. You're changing people's minds and you're entertaining people, which is very, very important to have a good time while we're doing the work that we all must do. So thanks for all you do. Thanks for coming on the show. And uh, congratulations on your coming baby and also on your 2019 tour. And uh, great to talk to you. Well, thank you so much. Uh, as I said before, the it's an absolute honor to be on. I, I'm so grateful to you personally for everything you've done uh, with the Mises Institute and the greatest website in the universe, Mises.org. So uh, once again, it, it was a real, real honor to meet you at Mises University, an honor to be there. And it's really great to talk with you today. Thank you, Dave. Well, thanks so much for listening to The Lou Rockwell Show today. Take a look at all the podcasts. There have been hundreds of them. There's a link on the LRC front page. Thank you. Thank you.